And so we might say this is an experience of the void. You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we work to make sense of the borderlands of digital media, culture, politics, and memes. My name is Josh Chapteline, and my co-host is memeticist Dr. Jamie Cohen. Today, artist, curator, and author of Glitch Feminism, Legacy Russell, explores the relationship between gender, technology, and identity, finding liberation through the glitch, the complex history of virality, and her forthcoming book, Black Meme. Before we begin, you can follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform now. Legacy, thank you so, so much for being here. And it's really great to have you here. And as I was saying, I, I admire your work incredibly. And The Glitch Feminism is such a good book. And I've not only been following it for quite some time, but your new work on Black Meme is absolutely stunning. And it is, it's so timely and important to ask the certain questions that you've posed in both the texts and the future text. And I think you've mentioned that on other interviews, that we're at a very interesting point temporally in history to where this type of work has to be interrogated because if we we aren't doing that. We're simply letting the systems operate in their very, very born and broken ways. So thank you so much for being here. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. So first, I actually want to start with glitch feminism. I actually want to talk about the, the glitch itself. Uh, I want to talk about the idea of malfunction, like mal- the idea of breaking a system that's born broken. So can you talk to us about glitch feminism? I know it was originally conceptualized in 2012 and published recently, but can you just talk to us about it a, a bit? Yeah. I mean, the book came about um, through a kind of long pathway. I would say, you know, the early essays were intended to exist purely on the internet. They were not, you know, written with the, the understanding that they would sort of be seen in any uh, major way. Um, and I think that the thing that became kind of quite clear very very early on was that obviously the audience that I wrote it for, which was like really for myself, for my community, um, you know, thinking actively about this question of breaking what's broken and um, the ways in which that can help us expand how we think about the body and body politic, that there was, you know, so much that intersected with how people were feeling and thinking about what their digital presence was. And so in 2012, when those original essays were published um, via Cybergology and Nathan Jurgensen's Society pages, and then and um, with Rhizome, um, it was a really amazing thing to start getting, you know, emails and letters and different types of correspondence from folks who, you know, all over the world were really asking to have different conversations about what this meant to them. Um, and so for me, what it, it brought into awareness was the fact that there was, you know, kind of a much larger conversation that was going on, that actually some of the things that I had been intimately um, dialoguing about and, you know, debating on um, in my community and, you know, know, kind of thinking about it through the lens of creative practice um, and contemporary art as well, right? That actually that the ways in which this came into contact in explosive and exciting new ways um, with other fields of study and the ways that people were um, writing and thinking and applying this question of the glitch, um, you know, opened up the community so um, generously. And it was, you know, a period of time, I think, where as I began to do the work of presenting more about this in the public realm, I also was finishing my dissertation at Goldsmiths. And, you know, it was a really funny period of time because, you know, I was working on this text that was this like, you know, haunted text that was, you know, inside of the academy system and and trying to produce a dissertation, which anyone who's ever 
worked in a dissertation just knows how challenging that can be, exhausting. It's like a, you know, it's an endurance race, right? And so um, it was an amazing thing to basically start working on what felt like a kind of dissertation on the side of my dissertation. But, you know, really, I, I like to think about it kind of through the lens of a kind of liberation work because the experience, obviously, of going through, you know, an academic system where I was inside of classrooms on a regular basis and engaging with theory, um, you know, dense histories that were being presented, which essentially were talking about Black and queer experience, many of them, um, as I studied art history and visual culture um, and the ways in which those things can be informed, right, um, through the, you know, the studies of, of kind of queer theory um, and, you know, Black histories, um, but that actually some parts of this were just so remarkable and strange because actually they conceptualized me, rendered me uh, to the point of not even being able to recognize myself. Um, and so, you know, I found that that experience actually made um, the writing of Glitch a necessity. It was like a survival mechanism and something that, you know, as the conversations expanded, it, it became very clear that um, this was something that other people um, needed as well. Absolutely. I, and yeah, I've been through the, the dissertation process and I was actually telling Josh previously, uh, I, I wrote my dissertation on 1990s cyberdelics, I guess is the way to describe it. And at the end, I wrote a, I wrote an appendices and a chapter, a, a broken up chapter on cyber feminism and the approaches of uh, Esther Dyson, Meredith Bricken, and uh, A.R. Stone, Sandy Stone, and their approaches to the body, the, the actual body in place. And so when I was doing this, it was like re-engaging with my previous work, which was about the idea of digital dualism and pushing back against the idea that we have two separate bodies and saying, you know, okay, we, we have an existence there. And one of the things that came from the research that I was focusing on about 1990s cyber feminism was the how correct they were about violence in digital spaces, that it isn't violence occurring in digital spaces, but violence that occurs in both. It's violence across. And I, I revisited it after reading your work again, because I was like, this is really important to focus on. And like you said, especially now, because these aren't just hot button topics, but this is about how we move forward. This is about how we, we recognize and respect and acknowledge pain, abuse, and just the hegemony of the structure that was kind of created that way. Like, I love your origin story at the opening of the text. And you talk about the, the chat rooms, and it, it really gives me a good throwback to like my, my experience in the 90s and stuff and could can you talk to me about what it's what was it like to have your that persona the love punk 12 while also in the physical space of new york city but also in a changing environment of cyber technologies and and becoming like cognizant of their structures what was that like yeah i mean i guess hmm it's an amazing question because uh, you know typically one of the um shared common spaces that i find when i speak to folks who kind of grew up in that period of time is that actually a lot of people were having cyber sex on the internet um in that period and so when i say cyber sex i mean like you know in all different types of forms but this idea of kind of being being a shapeshifter and experimenting with what that means, right? I think that there was um, a, an amazing confluence of identities that actually was really empowering and kind of curious and remarkable. Um, and so, you know, part of as well, um, the reason why I'm really interested in the histories of cyber feminism, um, where that intersects with this question of kind of um, di 
different types of becomings. And then as well, um, you know, the, the notion of how that intersects with a discourse that is art historical um, and driven by visual culture is that obviously um, this is like a really um, sticky and amazing material that people just don't talk about enough. So, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that there was an entire generation of people who came up, you know, and were, you know, on various, uh, you know, levels of AOL and Yahoo, different chat rooms, right? And and just pretending um, to be all different sorts of things. And I think that the narrative that we have, you know, sort of um, inherited in this period of time um, has, you know, long been one that has focused on a kind of fear-based internet, right? It's been something that, um, you know, teaches us that, you know, online we are uh, alone, we are isolated, we are um, that kind of odd, right? And odd in a pejorative sense, right? That actually that those who are kind of deeply um, embedded in these spaces and places, right, are um, so deeply marginal. Um, and so, you know, that as a discourse, you know, this kind of harm-based internet, this um, isolation internet was something that um, just didn't uh, reflect the experience that I had had, right? And as well, you know, it was interesting to talk to a lot of different folks, right? And many of the artists who are in the book, right? Um, you know, people who came of age in this period of time who are digital natives, quote unquote, um, and, you know, who very much so talk about this idea as, you know, it being an access point for them to explore different selves in a moment where perhaps the world away from the screen um, did not afford that same kind of uh, freedom. So for me, you know, I was like a queer black kid growing up in the East Village. I grew up on St. Mark's Place. Um, you know, it was a place where there was, you know, a kind of um, really amazing and radical history of performance, um, you know, and kind of music and art. But also at the same time, it was a space that was like really rapidly gentrifying. It became, you know, very clear that I had almost missed a, a pivotal chapter. And I think many people who moved to New York might feel this way that you're, you arrive just just after the point, right? Um, but in my case, like, you know, with my parents and, and the stories that they told about, you know, what it meant to kind of engage with a creative scene in that, uh, the moment that, you know, they kind of had moved downtown. Um, you know, it was a period of time for them that was, uh, you know, kind of incredibly immersive. And so part of what was very much so part of my experience of growing up in New York and being downtown at that time was actually watching things disappear. Um, you know, that immersion became something that was increasingly shallow and it was really challenging to watch because it was the points that I had related so deeply to and being able to, you know, kind of, um, engage in club space and, and, um, performance space. And so, you know, the question of what it meant to be online was also too watching at the same time, um, spaces of kind of a, a queer and black performativity basically um, be increasingly sanitized across New York City. And so as I was growing up and, you know, engaging in, uh, you know, the questions of, of being a teen in New York um, and then a young adult, you know, realizing that there were um, opportunities to think through the ways in which some of those spaces, you know, were moving online. And then, you know, quite literally as they moved online and took on, you know, a language of a kind of technoculture, um, then traveled out into the world again. And, you know, I can think very much so, um, for example, of the um, party that was kind of, you know, long running called Ghetto Gothic, right? Which Ghetto Gothic would never have become possible as a party if the internet was not a, a meeting site for Black and queer people. So, you know, I think it's a really interesting thing because so much of this question that Glitch poses, right? Which is like, what does it mean to use um, these digital spaces um, and to engage digital material as a, a site of performance, right? And as a site of 
of a kind of creative medium um, that actually, you know, it was in response to certain types of erasures that were happening in the first place. And so actually now seeing the ways in which people have mobilized digitally and allowed that to be possible um, via the kind of network space of the internet and cyberspace, um, that that actually now is kind of completing the loop, right? It's bringing us back into the physical world and that that is what disproves this long-held anxiety, right? That we are um, sort of deeply alone and isolated um, and afraid on the internet. Oh, that's incredible. I remember like seeing St. Mark's actually transformed in front of my eyes as I was like going to the city in my youth. I would always walk down the street and it's it's so great to talk to you. I would walk down the street and look at the buildings above the shops and I'd be like, I know people live here. That was me. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's you. And it was, it was so great to like read that in there because I always imagine who lives above the shops, who's here. And then I think of New York City. It, New York City is an immersive space. It is, it's an environment. And the internet is this space that l- allows you to use or utilize that given knowledge of the immersivity. And Meredith Brickett actually said in 1990, I think, where she called the body, the, the being, the body in the space, a perceptual apparatus. And I love the idea of it because that's what we're doing. We're perceiving that, that environment in, in actual physical space. You have this, the chapter on uh, remix and the idea of reframing and rebuilding those spaces and, and what it means to have the body and the physical body. And, and this is coming from like the cis white male perspective. It can't organically un- like be in that space, but I could, I could be reflexive to it. But it makes me understand that the idea of like the colonization of gentrification occurs without the participants engagement. Like there's no, there was no asking. Right. There are deep questions of consent. Right. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So how does glitch uh, resist? Yeah. I mean, I love this question because I I feel like um, often what people will come to the table about when they're struggling with this idea of the internet, right, is that they're like, well, you know, uh, online bad things sometimes happen. And sometimes these different platforms can be very bad as we've seen, right? And so this idea of good and bad is always kind of framed in a binary, of course. And and so, you know, how can you change that, right? The idea, though, is complicated because really when we ask about the quote unquote bad thing, that are happening on the internet, we're asking about the quote unquote bad things that are happening in the world, right? Outside, away from our screens, in addition to the things that are happening on our screens. And so, you know, I think that when we polarize these things, when we create a split between them um, and we begin to kind of um, build logic around these two separate sites that don't come into contact, that actually we are doing the greatest harm both to ourselves and to the idea of what um, it means to kind of transform, to remix, to change, right? So, you know, when thinking about, um, you you know, within the context of the book, you know, for me, I've been similar to coming up in a generation of folks who were experimenting, exploring online, right? Um, I also came up in a generation of folks who are very much so aware that um, the various platforms that folks are doing some of this performance in, right, and engagement, you know, of performance practice, whether they are artists as self-defined artists, right, or whether they are creating kind of creative material that engages, um, you know, questions of um, the body and, you know, the kind of circulation therein of what that means, right? Um, As a politic that this is also a generation of people who are deeply aware and informed about uh, the flaws of these different spaces, right? And are thinking actively about what it means to be seen or not seen, a kind of necessary visibility to to kind of call on a term from a young curator, um, Taylor Lamal, who's a dear friend. Um, but, you know, thinking about this idea of what it means to be necessarily visible, to be represented, right? What it means to actually have um, fair representation, um, to, to as well um, have empowered experiences that are 
are networked and digital. And so, you know, thinking about how that can happen on some of these platforms that are quite frankly, monopolies, right? They are these um, major corporations that, you know, we can see in our daily lives, right, have enacted a great deal of harm and trouble in many different forms and fashions um, has been, I think, a really important question. But I also recognize that people are doing that active work of trying to figure out ways to kind of skirt and subvert that and to propose new ways too, where their legibility can operate differently. And so, you know, even just thinking about um, there's been kind of an ongoing um, field of study that's continued to expand where um, people have looked to um, the history of drag and drag performance, um, you know, the questions of what it means to kind of make oneself up and and um, engage in different kind of uh, sort of trappings of gender as a mode of performativity, as a means of skirting certain types of surveillance digitally, because facial recognition actually um, is not built to do a certain type um, of recognition of bodies as they are actively changing in real time, right? So, you know, questions of, of um, as well, thinking through um, what it means to not engage with uh, sharing of one's body in any way and actually think through other ways where material can be put forward and circulated and networked, um, you know, in a kind of private sort of counter enclosure or counter public to, to draw on a term um, by Andre Brock from his amazing distributed blackness. But, you know, thinking about this idea of what does it mean to create these counter spaces that kind of skirt surveillance, right? That basically can mirror um, spaces of a kind of safety and security that we make to tr- create in home and private spaces away from our screens, right? Um, but that actually, too, are becoming part of what it means to be a body on the internet. So, you know, these are things that I think are the necessary interventions that are meaningful to expand how we do this work. Um, and I think it also, it doesn't always move in a straight line. I, I feel like that it is a slow and complicated process because, you know, for example, we can see at Google within the last year, there have been, you know, great upheavals there in terms of this question of ethical AI and, and the ways in which um, people of color actually have been incredible uh, forces and taking certain stands against what it means to build those systems, right? To participate in systems that actually are enacting a a certain type of harm on people of color, um, on queer identified people. So, you know, I I think that this is a process that is going to be a long process. It's one that actually is still very young in its history. And so really what the glitch, you know, intends to do, right, is to ask for that um, type of intervention to be the necessary work, an actual requirement and a demand if you are going to be a body that is a network body on the internet. One of the things of tech ethics and the idea of equity and its inability to be equitable because it was never started that way. When you mention hegemony or patriarchy, it's it's kind of like just saying internet. Mm. There's no separation between white supremacy and internet. It just is the system. One line that stuck out for me that I really loved in your book is about the colonial gaze that comes from that. The tool of the internet, when you break it as a tool and an access point and the ability to, to work with it is enacting that colonial gaze because it's designed that way. Right. I mean, it's literally a colonial eye. Right. Absolutely. It literally is that. And I think that's the thing that has to be knowledge that users, uh, not to use that term like that, but like people who are using the internet kind of have to have that acknowledgement that that's inbuilt because it's the only way we could start getting aggressive changes into the system if change is possible. And I really, I like the line you wrote where you said, we are in the room. 
And I, I, I would love to just hear a little bit about what, how you approach that, because that's something that I think is unacknowledged inside of these spaces where equitable foundations of the internet are not accessible in the current moment, but that doesn't mean you're not in the room. Can you explain like what that means? Yeah. I mean, I think that we're not users or participants, right? I, I feel like that, you know, sometimes that these things, they feel like um, semantic twists in language, but it's actually really important to ground our terms. And I do feel like that sometimes when we talk about the presence of being online and, and uh, using these various platforms and, you know, we call ourselves users, right? That like there's a passivity there that requires some examination. And so I do feel it's actually really important to think about what it means to participate, right? That actually that everything that we do on the internet is um, an opportunity to be political. And so that, you know, it's also too an opportunity to express a politic and, and to create different refusals within that. So, you know, this idea of being in the room for me feels deeply meaningful, given that, you know, we are seeing that even with these various platforms that there is so much of culture is being built around a kind of black and queer space, a vernacular, a visuality, that that in itself is like the big part that we need to keep talking about because there is something here that feels complex and, you know, quite frankly, engages almost like a kind of sort of um, system of a kind of plantation economics, right? When we're thinking about what it means to quite literally farm culture, um, you know, out of these spaces into the world in various forms and channels. And that, you know, these different platforms as they exist, the Twitters, the Instagrams, the TikToks, what have you, and Snapchat and beyond, that actually all of these different spaces are um, spaces that have channels within them that are deeply gentrified to kind of apply that term within the digital realm. They have, there are um, incredible opportunities for counter publics to exist within them. And, and that's something that, of course, um, Andre Brock explores um, with great care specific to this question of distributed blackness within his text. Um, but also as well, you know, it, it allows us to think differently about what our power is because, you know, it is not an, a, um, a small group of people that is insignificant, right. Um, within the context of this culture that is digital. And so there is this kind of active disconnect, right, between um, the the idea of who is sitting at the table, who that table, you know, when we think about um, tech, especially. Um, and I think it's important to splice the kind of current definition of tech, maybe from how the um, early definition of cyber feminism was embedded, right? Because actually, those two things um, do not always come into contact. But speaking, you know, specifically to this idea of tech, um, and the kind of Silicon Valley uh, infrastructure, right, that actually, absolutely, is something that is deeply flawed. And that was not built to um, recognize Black and queer people, you know, was not really recognized to do the work of um, engaging female identified people with care, um, does not have a, enough of a representation um, of a kind of creative sort of position in terms of um, thinking about the ways in which, um, you know, artists in particular are driving much of this work and thinking about as well the fact that these um, cult are really cultural engines, um, that all of that actually, as it comes into contact is an opportunity to kind of consider differently about um, what what we're producing and, you know, what that labor looks like, how that economy operates, and as well to consider, you know, what questions of compensation perhaps need to be part of this next uh, layer of discussion. And so we see that, um, you know, obviously taking shape and form in, a, you know, kind of um, micro level, I would say, like, you know, the, there's a kind of cash app 
a part of this that these become an ongoing discussion in terms of the intersections between cash app and a history of reparations, the ways in which those things as a microeconomy have begun to expand. And that's a quite a complicated intersection. Um, and then there's, you know, the sort of more macro examples, right, where we're seeing people um, think about what it means to release certain quote unquote content, creative capital, intellectual property for free um, into the world on these platforms, right? And have those things literally farmed by these corporations um, as part of their capital. So, you know, putting it behind, you know, the, a paywall, right? So basically individuals becoming, um, you know, kind of empowered by taking on the um, sort of uh, language of a kind of corporate personhood um, by, you know, asking for that kind of compensation as tied to their ongoing practices. These are things that are important questions about work, right? Um, but they also are, you know, kind of a shaping of a different type of industry um, and asking individuals too to think about what it means to kind of um, heighten their level of entrepreneurial work, really, um, as tied to advancing their own, you know, sort of property intellectually and otherwise. And so for that reason, it's a really volatile period of time, um, but also one that I think is like really ripe and exciting because, um, you know, you're seeing people kind of take back certain parts of perhaps what otherwise previously, um, you know, felt uh, out of control and disempowered um, and actually thinking through ways where um, they can demonstrate with the metrics that, you know, are possible to track on the internet, what the success and impact is really of their work. And that is really what this is, right? The creative fuel of the digital um, in this moment in time is so much um, driven by the work of people of color, female identified people, and queer people. 100%. There's a time a few years back, early teens, where there was a term that was used quite often that when I was teaching, starting the new media program, I was using, I was pushing back critically at this term that was a gentrifying term. And it was the, the idea of creative misuse. And creative misuse was this term that was used by saying that black communities were creating or creatively misusing, so to speak, apps, technologies, and so forth. There was no real language for it at the time. But what was happening is a feedback loop where corporations were then adopting it, compensation free, basically taking the ideas and embedding it directly into the software as a feature and non-credited, nothing, just simply we've upgraded the feature, which is just pure gentrification of an app, stealing, very much stealing or perpetuating the theft that has happened over, well, forever. And I was always under the this thought of like, shouldn't we question the idea that this is not neat? This isn't clean. The creative misuse isn't something you take. You know, it's it's not a cute term. It's a, it's like this is there's credit where it's due. So I appreciate you saying like there's systems at play here, like microtransactions or or ways in which compensation could take place. Because I think that's the thing that has to be amplified in order to disengage systems from doing things like what would be now under the terms of like digital blackface or usurping content or or just simply upgrading their app to match subculture. And yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think like there's a there's a deep um, and complex danger as well of the um, optics that sometimes have been used to actively disenfranchise people of color and queer people. Um, the idea that, for example, that if you have you know a huge following on the internet and something that you create goes viral, that actually that that um, equals your financial capital, right? That's not real. That is something that actually is not a fact, and it's not something that um, you know should be assumed. But unfortunately. There are, you know, examples of of that being the case, right? I'm thinking of, for example, like with Bobby Shmurda 
um, and the, you know, the kind of um, viral dance that he created, right? That part of the challenge there was that there was this ongoing assumption that his following and the virality of it equaled his, you know, kind of individual capital, right? And so that is the thing I think that's really um, disturbing, right? Is that because that is not um, a clear equation and because that is something that, you know, does not always map back and actually quite often, right, that there are um, black and queer contributors that are creating um, material that exists on the internet that goes viral and that travels actually away from its site of origin so far that actually, um, you know, it is not credited in any way to them um, and that other folks actually end up picking up on um, and sort of using within the context of their own work to garner their own capital um, and uh, advance their own sort of individual economies that, you know, these are things that become, a, you know, a deep question of provenance. Um, and as somebody in my, you know, case, this is where I'm putting on my, my curator hat, but, you know, this language of provenance and thinking of, as well of what it means to repatriate um, digital material is also something that feels like a really necessary conversation to have. It's a complicated one because obviously it engages big legal questions that I think that there are not clear precedent for. Um, but at the same time, right, that I think it still means that we have to keep thinking about it um, and and strategizing towards um, ways of, of adapting and, and kind of creating different forms of elasticity in a, a system that otherwise historically has been quite rigid and rigid in privilege certain bodies over other bodies. Oh, so this, this is beautiful. So I want to talk to you about your video essay and future work, Black Meme. And something that you just brought up is really, really like str that strikes in my emotional core here, which is about the idea of uh, when I was watching the, the, the piece, the video essay, a term that kept popping into my head was appropriation and meaning and ownership. And one of the, the point in which the, the video essay really struck me is something that I've never, in real honesty, it never hit me until I watched it. And I love video art and I love video essays. And the dancing baby meme, in the whiteness of the dancing baby meme, in comparison to the white men doing the Trayvon Martin meme, and it was distinct violence. Like... The subtext of the violence of a meme, first off, is is in there because when we use memes, we say without saying. And when the dancing baby meme became like the origin story of so so called future memes, I don't think there was a thought or or a critical awareness of its of its abject whiteness in comparison to the way that black memes or black culture would be usurped violently in every direction. And and I I love the way you put that piece together. Can, can you talk a bit about black meme? Yeah. So black meme actually as a video video essay, part of the, my writing practice as I, um, you know, kind of move into, into the world of, of, um, you know, creating books as I do, um, and, you know, other types of, um, art writing, but a, a big part of how I do that work is I create video essays. So this is something that, um, perhaps may seem unusual, but it helps me think because obviously if we're working with images, it's helpful to think through with images, how these things relate to each other. So, um, it's kind of like a sketch or a study of sorts. Um, and the video essay, um, uh, it was kind of part of my early research. And I did a, a talk with Atlantic Contemporary over the summer um, in 2020, uh, kind of to share and present some of my early work on this as I've um, embarked on this next book project. And so thinking about the histories of virality is a big part of what Black Meme aims to do. I do feel that, you know, a lot of folks often when they think of viral culture and meme culture, they are thinking about it as a very young history that as if, you know, it 
didn't exist before the internet existed. And actually, you know, the work that the book um, does is to show us differently, um, to prove otherwise, because, you know, quite frankly, the language of virality um, as it has been built around um, blackness, um, you know, and, you know, as well, the kind of ontological blackness, black death, black social death, um, and then also to black life that actually this is all bound up and entangled with what we now understand to be um, viral culture. And so when you talk about the dancing baby, um, you know, it's, it's complicated because, you know, you're identifying that correct, right? That there is a kind of abject whiteness that is like wound into that um, as a kind of um, machinic material. But then also there is this complicated um, borrowing and theft that even exists there that actually the early stages of that um, in terms of as it, you know, began to travel into the world, it was, you know, known as the cha-cha baby and and was something that um, had that name appeared on Ally McBeal. You know, it was this um, interesting and very gendered trope that would always appear um, in the background when Ally McBeal would be having a crisis about whether she should or should not reproduce, right? So it was like really flawed and problematic. And they actually, if you watch, um, you can find some clips online, but if you watch it online, um, you can see too that there's actually, that they, they lighten the skin tone and change the shape of the body of the baby um, that exists um, within the context of the show. Um, but that actually part of the reason why this baby is complicated is because it is both sort of engaging questions of a kind of abject whiteness, but then also as well um, has layered into it um, histories of people of color. Um, and so, um, you know, within that, right, they also was called the Uga Chuga baby, right? And that also is like deeply flawed and problematic too, because it brings to light, you know, the histories, of course, of minstrelsy um, and the language, right, that, you know, kind of is is uh, sort of threaded through that um, in terms of the, the chant that would go with the baby as the baby danced, right? So, you know, thinking about what it means to have that as a, a, a kind of birthplace, right, that like quite literally people look at that um, as a story of origin, um, that the creators themselves, you know, this was somebody who, um, you know, in terms of Michael Gerard were basically this, you know, was a white man who created this baby and, you know, the way that it traveled out into the world set a precedent for how that, you know, should work moving forward. But I also think that it's a complicated question of privilege because, you know, he was somebody who created this kind of recreationally. It was, there was a a part of this that was um, an exploration for him and then perhaps got away from him. Um, but that, you know, really was like an early harbinger of some of these questions of what it means to have these circulated materials travel um, at a speed and pace that actually um, sometimes, you know, is impossible to regain control over once that material is set into motion. And, you know, with the case of thinking about um, the question of Black meme and, and the ways in which that material is brought together, it looks at the history from 1900 to present day. It, it identifies, you know, Birth of a Nation, um, D.W. Griffith's film, right, which is like a sort of virulently racist film. Yeah. And the first film shown in the White House. Yes, literally. <laughs> yeah. So like a virulently racist film material that has been circulated in in a way actually that is um, absolutely monumental. It's, it is, you know, shown in, in cinema studies classes. I can think of when I was in school and, and um, studying kind of film 101, right, that you um, are shown this film as an example of kind of editing and technique, right, um, set right alongside of like a lime kiln field day, which, um, you know, features Burt Williams and Odessa Warren Gray. And um, that this is a film that, you know, had in a sort of all black cast, um, which was, you know, unheard of at the time and rose out of the same studio as Birth of a Nation, um, that these are complex origin sites and stories because, you know, 
Birth of a Nation went viral in many ways. It exists in the world. It has been, you know, circulated to the point where um, it is so deeply saturated in our systems of visual culture and as well um, has been a core driver of how other visual culture has been reproduced, right? Um, so when we look at GIFs, for example, you know, we can look at GIFs and actually um, map them right back to the early histories of silent cinema, right? And and um, the kind of um, nascent beginnings of moving image in, in uh, the United States. So there's like a complex relationship that stands there. And then also to this question of circulation as it's tied to white spectatorship, that actually part of a virality, the thing that, you know, is required for something to go viral in so many ways, um, you know, especially when it comes to material that is uh, engaging the black body as a subject is, is often the, is who is looking. That's the question. Um, and so the complex nature of that, you know, asking about who is the audience for this and how does that operate and what are the other examples across an American history um, that we can point to that, you know, help us um, interrogate further this question of spectatorship. You know, I'm thinking specifically, for example, of, of lynching photography and lynching postcards that were quite literally sent in the mail, right? That is viral. Um, and that, you know, this as a, a mode of visual culture and, and spectacle, uh, and fetish, right? That actually um, creates a different type of material that we are needing to examine actively in order to do this work of talking about black memes. All of <laughs> everything you've just said is exactly what should be taught in cinema studies courses, in media studies courses. These are the known uncomfortables that we have to engage with because even even just teaching, I, I as a TA in grad school, I had to teach Birth of a Nation. And I, I was just not keen on the way that the, the syllabus had placed it because I just kept seeing it as like, so we're just going to keep doing this. Okay. And it was almost, and to watch current news events all the way up until the other night, the idea of the message that comes from Birth of a Nation is still in literally an active tense, thing, a racist moment that is every day that is still happening. And it's almost as if a hundred years and today have folded together. So your, your, your video essay is incredible because it is kind of like a history, a century, you know, a century of violence that's played out in a way that is in the, and I think black meme is a great, good term here. It's played out in the meta text. It's in the meaning behind the meeting. And it's what we have to feel and what we have to gain from that. Because if, as, as spectators, as people who actively participate in the colonial gaze of the, the internet and of the systems, it, if we don't start gaining a grip on it or resisting its its structure, it will, it's, we, you can't do this for another century. I mean, that's the best way to think right. of that. It's, right. I mean, or we could, but it would be quite perverse, right? So it would be so, right. Now knowing right. what we know. Exactly. So I think that this is where it's like one of those moments where my hope is that that we can and, and I I don't want glitch feminism to be, you know, the like sort of comprehensive syllabus of all things forever. I don't want black meme to be that either. I want these things to be um, propositions in the world, proposals to do something different. Right. And my hope would be that, you know, as we've seen with um, some of the incredible work we mentioned, of course, Andre, um, uh, many times in this convo, um, uh, but also like looking at the work, for example, of Safia Emoja Noble or um, Ruha Benjamin, right? That there are these incredible folks who are thinking actively about um, the ways to strategize in these pivotal moments, right? And so the hope is that like each of these different pieces are really a piece of a, of a different type of syllabi that in the future, right, just as you and I had to engage with Birth of a Nation, right, in um, these um, academic sites, right, that actually there will be a counter proposal um, and that these different texts can work together to do that work. Absolutely. I think that this is a good place for us to 
to sum up because I, as I was saying to you earlier, I think this is the work that will be, I'll be engaging with. And I think this is an important time, like you said, like distributed blackness, glitch feminism, black meme. These are texts that are now here. We, we will start engaging with them. Thank you so much for being here. And I thank you for your work. And I want to make sure that to let you know, that this is the type of stuff that will be embedded, hopefully into, well, it'll be embedded in my courses for one thing, but I, I do hope that this is this is the critical approaches that we have to go like forward with. I was using Amar Christian's, AJ Christian's work, uh, Charlton McElwain's. AJ Christian just announced today OTV is uh, Mer- is working with Lily Wachowski, which I think is really fantastic too. So it's this is all amazing things. And this is what, what I think the point you bring to this before I let you go is that now we have these texts, which is important. So it would be perverse not to engage. Right. It's in, like, the, you know, we, 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 this is our, our warning, right? This is really, yeah. I think that there are these many moments. And if we're seeing um, nothing else in this crazy period of time in the world, it's the fact that they, we had um, many warning shots, right? That were the harbingers of this particular moment in the world, right? That has been absolutely catastrophic for so many people. Um, and that unfortunately, there were not enough moments where people press pause and did the work to think through how to pivot and shift, right? So actually the collective action that we have kind of seen as a possibility um, over the course of this past year and a half is has been, you know, really phenomenal and encouraging because it's really, you know, a moment where I think so many people have realized that, you know, if we sit back and we wait for someone else to do this work, that actually it might not happen, right? And so um, this is the question about what it means to be self-determined and empowered, right? And to remix for ourselves. And um, that is my hope, right? To be able to be an active participant in that and encourage others to do the same. Thank you so much. Seriously. How can people learn Thank more you. about your work? Where can they find you? How can they follow you? Yeah, they can follow me on all the platforms. <laughs> it's, I'm easy to find. Um, many digital traces there. Um, and as well, you know, stay tuned because I'm uh, you know, in the process, as you said, of working on the second book, um, which is forthcoming from Verso Books and, um, you know, is titled Black Meme, My Hope is that it will continue um, some of the strands of conversation that Glitch began. Um, And, you know, I'm really excited to be in conversation with you here and with so many folks who've reached out to me thus far. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how that continues to expand. Excellent. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you to Legacy for joining us on the Digital Void podcast. To learn more about Digital Void and to find show notes of today's episode and all previous conversations, you can visit us on the web at digitalvoid.media. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll be back next week.